Hey, welcome to Evangel Church Online, a safe place for everyone to explore faith in Jesus. And can you believe that we are in the second Sunday of Advent 2021? In today's video, we're gonna be starting a new series. We're calling it Counter Cultural Christmas. Hey, welcome back everyone. If you're new with us, my name is Lucas. I'm one of the pastors at Evangel Church. We're located in Powell River, British Columbia, and we're so glad that you're hanging with us this morning. Um, can you believe, like I said, Christmas is upon us. Like we're in the second week of Advent. Uh, I don't know where you're at. I know some of you are, you love Christmas. You probably have had your Christmas tree up for at least, you know, a few weeks already. Uh, I know our family, our Christmas tree has been up for a while. Uh, in fact, uh, our presents are wrapped and under the tree. We're kind of like ready to go. And that's got nothing to do with me, but um, that's how excited our family is about Christmas season. And so I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you're stressed right now or if you are just looking forward to that day coming. Um, but either way, Christmas is so significant, particularly for the Christian church, the Christian calendar. And when we look at kind of um, what Christmas encapsulates is Emmanuel, God with us. It's such a significant moment where it demands each year that we kind of pause and we kind of reflect and take stock of the significance of this season. So we're going to do that. We're starting a new series called Countercultural Christmas. And we're going to be looking at uh, different individuals from the Christmas narrative that we find in the Gospels. And we're going to kind of discover that in the first century, but also by extension into our day, uh, it was pretty countercultural. The things that people did, the uh, obedience that God called them to, caused them to kind of walk against the kind of grain of the culture around them. And so today, we're going to actually be jumping into the life of Joseph. So Joseph being uh, Jesus' adopted father, the one who took, uh, took Mary, and um, as, as his wife and, and was, had adopted Jesus as his firstborn son and, and all the things. And so we're going to kind of take a look at Joseph's life and we're going to explore and see just how countercultural Joseph's life was as he was being obedient to God. Now, if you're taking notes, if, if there's one thing I want you to kind of meditate on or think about as we leave today, uh, it would be this. So if you're taking notes, write this down. A pattern of obedience to God will lead you into a countercultural life. I'm going to say that again. A, a pattern of obedience to God will lead you into a countercultural life. So we have to ask the question, what do we know about this man, Joseph? And to answer that, we need to go to the Gospels. And, and we find Joseph in probably one of the most exciting seasons and moments of his life. You know, he's, he's establishing himself in, in his trade. He is um, putting together a nest egg, so to speak. He's building a home. He's doing all of the things that he needed to do as a man to walk out this new, fresh season of bringing his betrothed, his wife, into his home. And they start their new life together. And so he's putting his resources and his time, and there's probably like this sense of excitement. You know how a young life love is, 
You know, you can kind of feel the excitement, the anticipation, the love that's growing in Joseph's heart towards Mary, his betrothed. Um, and so this is kind of the season of young love. Now, things were done very differently in the first century than today. However, um, love was certainly in his heart towards Mary because we, we, we see the way that he reacts to some of the things that happen right away here that he's trying his very best to um, love Mary. We're going to see how that all plays out. But we know that there's love in his heart towards this young woman, Mary. Now, I mentioned that there's differences, you know, in terms of the first century and how things were done. And, and living according to the law of Moses was paramount. Uh, living a life of character and integrity uh, pers- per- like certainly in terms of how people perceived you within the culture around you was super, super important. And so that's going to kind of set a tone for how countercultural this moment is for Joseph, because he has to make some pretty significant decisions as he walks out obedience to what God begins to call him to. And so it's in this climate, it's in this climate of, um, holiness and righteousness being paramount within the culture of, of right living and doing things the right way. Um, and, and it's in this culture that his betrothed Mary brings him this kind of soul crushing news. I'm pregnant. Now, <laughs> not only is this kind of soul crushing, but she doesn't even have the decency to own up to her own indiscretion. She doesn't have the decency to kind of tell him what happened because now she's telling him this ridiculous story that Yahweh uh, came and spoke to her through an angel that she was going to conceive a son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Like this is unprecedented. This is like Joseph has to be really, really wrestling with this moment. And there's this kind of soul-crushing moment for him. But, but even in the midst of this controversy, he thinks not of himself. And this is how we have a clue that he really did love Mary in this moment. Is He's not thinking about himself, but he is thinking about Mary. In Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 19, it says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. So after getting this news that she's pregnant, he knows the kid's not his. So instead of putting her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. So in other words, he's already made the decision. He is going to divorce her. Now, to understand this moment, you you might say, but hey, hold on a second. He's not, you know, they're not married yet. They're betrothed to one another. They're engaged to one another. But to understand this, we, we really need to understand the first century kind of concept of marriage. Because there were actually three parts to a marriage. Now, the first was the engagement, and often the engagement was something that was uh, coordinated by parents or by a matchmaker, and oftentimes when they were just kids. And so this is an arrangement of marriage that became kind of the engagement. And so what would happen is during that season, if the young lady or the young man came to the place where they were going to walk into the second part of this marriage um, journey they could at that time during the engagement they could say no i'm out don't want to do this they could do that and and there would be no issue in terms of legal issues 
Now we step into the second part. When they are ready to get married, they become betrothed to one another. Now this goes from engagement to a, a kind of contract with one another, this, this kind of covenant language with one another, but it's not yet fully a marriage. So this is a year window, one year where they would be betrothed to one another. Uh, it would be during this time that the man would bring uh, dowry and all the things that he would need to bring to the parents and to the father. And so there's a lot going on, but they, in this season, they're betrothed to one another. The only way to exit that relationship during that season, that one year period of betrothal, would be divorce. You would have to divorce. That person, if for all intents and purposes, is your husband or your wife. And so you would have to get a divorce during that window of time. Now, the third part of marriage would be kind of the marriage proper. And, and this is kind of the conclusion of the year where they would enter into the fullness of the marriage. And so this is where they would consummate the marriage physically together. And so during the betrothal, they would not be together in terms of uh, sexually or, or intimately, but it would be marriage proper where they would consummate the marriage fully. Now, Joseph and Mary, they found themselves in this one year betrothal window. And so Joseph would have to divorce her, officially divorce her in order to break up this relationship. And so he doesn't want to do this publicly. He wants to do it quietly because the culture of the day would have demanded severe consequences towards Mary for her indiscretion or her perceived indiscretion. And so this is a significant moment. So he's, he's, he's full of angst. He's hurt. He's betrayed. He's resolved in his heart that he is not going to go ahead with this wedding. He is going to divorce her quietly. But what's interesting is before he can kind of get the ball rolling on this, Joseph sleeps on it. And during that time, he has a dream. Now, before we get into this, can I, can I just say, when the stakes are high, when, when emotions are hot, when you're faced with a decision that will ir irrevocably change your life, um, it's always good to sleep on it. Because, because our perspectives in the morning are almost always clearer than our perspectives at night. And so Joseph, he sleeps on it. So let's jump in. Matthew 1, verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. A pattern of obedience to God will lead you into a countercultural life. This becomes the first of many dreams that Joseph has over the years. And they change the trajectory of Joseph's life. Each one is calling him to these acts of obedience. And as we unpack this passage, we discover kind of a number of things that become very countercultural. Decisions that were made by Joseph that did not make sense within the context of his culture around him. 
He's being asked to adopt a son that is not his. Not, not only that, but he's, he, he's, he's adopting a firstborn son that is not his son. Now, to understand this, you know, the firstborn son in a, in a first century family carried a significant role in carrying on your name, your genealogy, but also it played a significant role in your inheritance, what you left to your family. And so Joseph is being asked to adopt a firstborn son, and in, in doing so, he's giving him all the rights and privileges of that position in his family. This is countercultural. This is significant. But it's more than that. Jo Joseph is also being asked to sacrifice his reputation in a very countercultural way. You know, the day demanded excellence in character, and no one was going to believe that Joseph wasn't the father, right? Like, like no one's going to believe that. And so Joseph had to have thought these things through in his decision whether or not to be obedient to this angel that brought this message from God in this dream. He had to have thought these things through. This is going to cost him. It's going to cost him his reputation. Remember, they're betrothed. They're not fully married. They're not supposed to be together intimately. And yet, here, Joseph is going to be judged by the culture around him. And he makes a very countercultural commitment to his wife, Mary. And finally, even after they're married, Joseph has the discipline to refrain from sleeping in, with his wife. And why is that? Well, it's because he purposely maintains the integrity of this immaculate conception, right? By abstaining. Now, it could be said that that is as significant a miracle as the, the immaculate conception itself. But, but this is a countercultural moment. And if you understand the wedding day, when you walked into the wedding proper, the third part of a marriage... You'll understand why this is so significant because during that time on a wedding day, they would go into a room and they would consummate the marriage sexually. And then when they've done that, they would actually take a towel that would have blood on it, sorry, um, but, and they would hand it out to the witnesses that were outside of the house or outside of the room to confirm virginity. Now, I'm not, I'm not making this up. This was the practice of weddings in the first century. I'm not making this up. You thought your wedding night was awkward. Wow, this is next level. But the tradition, the public celebration of the marriage, all those things were lost to Mary and Joseph as they made this decision to be obedient to God. Their lives were turned upside down in a, such a countercultural way within that first century environment. A pattern of obedience to God will lead you into a countercultural life. Now, my favorite stories of men and women that have been called into different kind of areas of ministry are, are the non-traditional ones. I, I'm kind of always taken with those who have, have uh, established a career or working within the workforce or within different segments of society or our, our economy. And they feel this like overwhelming call from God to enter into some type of ministry, whether it's serving the church or, or starting a nonprofit or going onto the mission field and propagating the gospel around the world. Now, there's something so significant about kind of that sort of countercultural calling to those that are already established in a career, right? Those that are already 
making the money, uh, putting, putting the investments, uh, having kind of their retirement plan in place, like all the things. And then God calls them to something significant, bigger than themselves, bigger than this world, bigger than their career. And they say yes to God. I'm always so drawn to those kinds of people. I've known a number of those people within church leadership over the years. And they always seem to be so well equipped for the calling that God calls them to because of their history and kind of where they came from. And I just think that the, 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 the extremes of what we learn within Joseph's life here, these, these patterns of obedience to God, they're eventually going to lead you to these countercultural moments. And as I think about those that say yes to the call, despite the cost, despite how countercultural it looks to those around them, despite the fact that those closest to them might not even understand why in the world they're doing what they're doing, there's something so significant about those that swim against the tide. Those that say yes to a calling bigger than themselves, even if it costs them everything. And as, as we watch this play out in Joseph's life, we have to ask the question, has my faith in Jesus led me to areas of countercultural living in my day? Like, is this journey that I'm on causing me to live in ways that don't make sense to the world around me. And that's not to say just, um, there's some, I don't know, how do I say this? Sometimes people are just like weirdos. Like I'm not talking about being like a weirdo. I, I'm, I'm, talking, <laughs> I'm talking about being those that everyone around you saying, you need to do this one thing, like you're good at this, or you're that, but you hear God calling you to something significant, something specific, something that doesn't make any sense. And you say yes to God. Like I'm talking about that, that kind of peculiar living, that kind of countercultural living. Has my faith led me to areas of countercultural living in my day? And if not, we, we have to probably take inventory of of what we haven't said yes to that God is calling us to. Because a pattern of obedience to God will always lead you into a countercultural life. And if your priorities, values, and life reflect the culture around you, it may be a good indicator that there are some places of obedience not yet walked out. Now, I want to make a very important distinction before we go on. A bit of a caveat, if you will. A countercultural life and the life of a contrarian are not the same thing, all right? So, so before you think, you know, my contrarian nature, I'm against basically everything. I, 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 I'm a square peg in a round hole and everywhere I go, I find tension and I find um, arguments and fighting and I'm always going against the flow. Um, that's not what we're talking about. Those two things are not mutually exclusive, right? My, you know, those that think, you know, my contrary in nature uh, to everything around me is just countercultural, righteous living. Um, no, you should probably take inventory of what's going on in your life. There are those who live counterculturally that, that I want to be around, uh, who inspire me. And then there are those who are just simply contrarians that are just hard for anyone to be around. 
Uh, so we're, th those two things are not mutually exclusive. We need to kind of walk out a bit of a season of discernment there. But I just felt that that distinction would be important to make here. Now, I, I want you to consider what we know of the end of Joseph's life, right? What do you know about the end of Joseph's life? Well, the reality is we know nothing. We know nothing about the end of Joseph's life. And in fact, Joseph kind of just disappears. When we read through the Gospels, he kind of just slowly disappears from the narrative into relative obscurity. We, we don't know what happened to Joseph. And what's interesting is, is even the fact that we know of Joseph, his fame, so to speak, is so associated to his association with Jesus as, as his adopted son. And so it's, it's thought that Joseph, somewhere between Jesus' teen years and his public ministry, somewhere within that window, Joseph died. Joseph is no longer with the family. Uh, we know this because uh, Jesus on the cross makes sure that his mother has uh, someone in his life that's going to take care of her for the rest of her life. You know, Jesus makes sure that happens. So we have these clues that Joseph's no longer there. He's most likely passed away. Now here's the observation with that. Here, here's... Here's the tension that we have to manage with this truth. Obedience to God may not lead you to notoriety and fame in this world. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Obedience to God may not lead you to notoriety and fame in this world. And, and, and where the world is in pursuit of fame as a number one priority, particularly in the day we live in, God may lead you into a countercultural way. But, but this is what the alternative biblical worldview does. It makes us aware of the fragile and temporary nature of this existence while showing us the priority of the eternal life waiting. You know, Joseph had many dreams. One told him to leave Israel and move his family to Egypt because Herod was out to kill Jesus. Another told him to uproot all that he built in Egypt and move back to Israel. And the man's mission in this life was to be the protector and the sustainer of the household that Jesus would grow up in. And he did it faithfully. He said yes to the calling of God each time God called on him. His pattern of obedience to God led him into a countercultural life. Yet in quiet obedience, he lived for something bigger than this world. Now, let me ask you a question, and it's not a light question, and it doesn't have a simple answer. This question, it demands us to scour our souls and search our souls. Is obedience to God enough for you? Is obedience to God enough for you. Let, let, let me ask this in, in a, a bit of a different way. Um, are the eternal rewards, are the eternal rewards for faithfulness enough for you? The answer isn't simple, is it? Because sometimes yes, <laughs> but oftentimes through our actions and through our priorities and through the things we value and the places we spend our time, the answer is no. 
And, and we live within this tension, just as Joseph would have, of being obedient to the calling of God. We live in this tension where sometimes, yes, Lord, obedience to you is enough. And other times through our actions, we have to walk in these moments of repentance because they haven't been. And we're seeking the rewards of the world around us. And this is the tension that we live in. Joseph lived in the same tension, and yet, despite the cost, he somehow found a grace to say yes to the calling of God at every turn. A pattern of obedience to God will lead you into a countercultural life, but it will also lead you into the most profound tension you have ever managed. Because saying yes to what is eternal often means saying no to the things that are temporal, the things that are around us, the things that are tangible, the things that we can kind of sink our teeth into and touch and feel and, and know in our experience here in this world and in this time. You know, the, the return on investment, the ROI, is calculated in such a different way in terms of the kingdom of God. The, the place of reward, it exists on a different plane. Even, even the understanding of why, why he's asking something of us, we don't always get the answer to. We don't always get the full perspective. Even in retrospect, sometimes there's things in retrospect we look back on and we still don't understand. Why did I need to be obedient to that calling in that moment? And yet somehow the greatest hope, the greatest fulfillment, the sense of purpose is found in the mystery of our obedience to the way, the will, and the word of God. The tension it creates is palpable, but the life it leads you into is purposeful. A pattern of obedience to God will lead you into a countercultural life. Lord, we just thank you for this Christmas season. And Lord, as we look at these different elements, and these, these individuals who walked with you and talked with you and interacted with you. And Lord, we just, we just think, Lord God, that, that these are real people that had real struggles, that walked through the same tensions that we do. And yet, Lord God, we see that your grace was sufficient to give them strength to walk out this life. And so, Lord, there's hope for us as well. As we look at Joseph's life, as we look at what he sacrificed, we look at what he gave up in this world. Lord, we thank you that he is profoundly rewarded in the next. That, Lord, you have taken care of him. That you have seen him through. That, Lord, his life was one of fulfillment and grace because, Lord, he was obedient to your way. And so, Lord, would he stand as an example to each and every one of us. When we want to let kind of the world kind of just take us and, and pursue the things around us, Lord, would you remind us that your way often will lead us into the tension of saying no to what we want or at least what we think we want and saying yes to deeper things, to greater things, to eternal things. We thank you, Lord, that there is a reward, that there is a fulfillment, that there is a sense of purpose when we say yes to the calling of God, even in this world, even in this time. And so, Lord, would you give us grace to say yes to your calling, say yes to your way, your will, and your word. 
And that, Lord, as we feel that palpable tension, that you would give us grace to push through that and into that sense of purpose that you have for each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Lucas for that encouragement to live a life of obedience just like Joseph did. Well, it's my privilege to lead you in a moment of communion. So if you don't have some sort of like cracker or bread or something like that and something to drink, um, whether it's juice or water or milk, whatever it is, just pause this for a moment and make sure that you go and grab that for this communion moment. Well, this is the second week of Advent, and that is the candle of peace. And as I was thinking about it, I just thought, how perfect is it that communion, this moment where we remember the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus, is linked with peace? Because the reality is, because of the cross, we are able to have peace with God. In fact, Romans 5 tells us in verses 1 and 2, therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We don't have anything to fear when we come into the presence of God because Jesus has made a way for us to have relationship with him through the cross. And as 1 Corinthians is going to tell us, we're going to read this in a moment, but every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And that's what Romans 5-2 was talking about, that we have this peace now but we know that we're gonna have eternal peace forever when we get to share in the coming victory of Jesus. We get to have eternity with God. And that is the hope that we cling to in this Christmas season, that we have Emmanuel, God with us now, but we also have something to look forward to. And so in this moment of the cross, let's enter it with such gratitude that we, through Jesus, are able to have peace with God, that when we accept that gift of salvation, we are invited into this journey with God himself, who never leaves us, who walks every step with us, so that like Joseph, we can remain obedient even when it doesn't make sense, even when it is countercultural. For I passed on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. And in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's partake together. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that you are the mediator. You are the one who makes a way between God and humanity. 
We thank you that because of you, we can have peace with God. We can enter into a relationship with God with nothing to fear. And we thank you that our story doesn't end at the grave, but we have your coming to look forward to and we can share in your glory, in the victory of what you did as everything is put to rights. And so would you help us to be people of peace who would walk in obedience to you and reflect your love, your hope, and your peace to the world around us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, I have a few announcements for you to close off our time together today. The first is maybe the most exciting, and that is our Christmas Eve service coming up December 24th at 6.30 p.m. Well, as you might have heard this week, our provincial health orders have changed in regard to worship gatherings. And what they've asked is that we remain under 50% seating capacity unless we have proof of vaccination of everyone who is eligible for the vaccine. Um, and so what we have decided in order to make sure that everyone who wishes to attend what is a very important part of most people's Christmas celebrations, the Christmas Eve service, in order to make sure that everyone who wishes to attend can, we are going to put registrations in place to ensure that we are under that 50% capacity, allow for spacing, masks will be required, we'll do all that we need to do to honor those provincial health orders. So right now, if you wanna go to our Christmas Eve service on December 24th at 6.30 p.m., head on over to myevangel.church and register. It will be the banner at the very top of the website. It will bring you to a separate page. Register everyone that you know is going to come because you do not want to miss out on the Christmas Eve service. Once spots are gone, they are gone. So do it right now. Well, we know that December is a time when a lot of people are kind of thinking through giving um, and specifically to charities. And we wanna thank you so much for your partnership over 2020 and 2021. The reality is that 2021 has hit us as a church very hard. We have not made budget. We have been kind of living off of a very, very generous gift by one donor. And, and the reality is that we've used that gift up. And so if you are able to help this December season, this Christmas season, we survive based off of your generosity and your faithfulness. And so we wanna thank all of those who have been giving for what you've done. You've kept lights on, you've kept the mission of Evangel Church going. But if you wanted to give in December, we wanted to let you know that our office will be closed December 24th through December 30th. And so even that Sunday morning will be online. So if you want to give at year end, do it before December 23rd, or the office will be open on December 31st from nine to five for that one final uh, day in 2021, if you want to give. But again, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. And we would ask if you have benefited from what Evangel Church is doing, would you consider partnering with us if you are not already doing that? Well, that is it for us, friends. I'm so glad that you were able to join us today, and I pray that your week is full of quiet obedience, just like Joseph. <laughs>